Hey, it's Greg. This is the Square Pizza Pod, cooked up by Shermco. Welcome back to another episode of the Square Pizza Pod. Today, Greg is in conversation with Fidel Vargas, who is the president and CEO of the Hispanic Scholarship Fund. In today's episode, you will learn a lot of unique facts about Fidel Vargas, including that at the age of 23, he was elected mayor of Baldwin Park, California. You will also learn in this episode how the Hispanic Scholarship Fund strives to make college education a top priority for every family across the nation. I hope you guys enjoy this one. All right. Wonderful. Mr. Vargas, how are you doing today, sir? I'm great. How are you, Greg? Well, I'm, I'm good. Healthy and employed, as far as I know. Healthy and employed. So all good things. Appreciate you joining. That's great. No, um, thank you. Square Pizza Potted. You're coming from California. Is that correct? I'm in Los Angeles. Los Angeles. How is it today in L.A.? Let's see. It is sunny. Uh, according to my uh, Apple Watch, it says it's 61 degrees outside, high of 73. Sounds pleasant. Sounds, Sounds quite nice. Um, uh, you know, so of course, getting ready this morning, eating my Wheaties, watching my Sports Center Lakers. I, you know, are supposed to. They have the second best chances. Sports Center tells me in the NBA to win the championship this year. Do you agree or disagree with that? I'm a huge Lakers fan, so okay. I'm 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 behind the team regardless. Um, I go back to the the Kareem mm-hmm. and, and Magic days. So um, we've been very fortunate to have some uh, great basketball uh, teams over the years, and we even have the Clippers now too. So sure. we got we doubled our our chances of of uh, being a championship city here in LA. <laughs> I guess, yeah, I probably shouldn't have assumed you are a Laker fan. Uh, I am, yeah. <laughs> I, know LA, I know they have two teams, but, you know, maybe that's my own bias that everybody just likes Lakers over the Clippers, but I shouldn't do that. No, I'm I'm, an, I'm uh, certainly a Lakers fan. I've been uh, my whole life, and okay. uh, I also root for the Clippers uh, when they're not playing the Lakers. That seems fair. <laughs> Good for you. Um, more options. Well, for, you know, I should also say first happy Hispanic Heritage Month. I know we'll get to more kind of about your work and that work as well. We want to make sure we honor that from the beginning of the podcast today. Sure. Um, and I think, you know, also um, doing some of our research, even before some of the stuff we found, I think you were also a student athlete, at least in high school, if not college. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I um, that, that's actually a, a place where I learned a lot of great lessons that have helped me throughout my life. So, yeah, I played uh, football and uh, basketball and baseball in high school. Sure. Um, so I didn't have a day off in four years. Um, so that was that was always fun. I'd imagine that helped uh, prepare you for some scheduling and professional responsibilities going day by day um, from athletics to professional work. Is that fair to assume? No, absolutely. Uh, and um, you hear it when you when you listen to people that have been incredibly successful that I you know aspire to be as successful or, or a fraction of their success. People like you know Kobe Bryant or Serena Williams, um, you know Michael Jordan, uh, Katie Ledecky. When you hear them tell their stories, what you what you don't see is you see the success, but you don't see the hard work that goes, you know, uh, before that success. You know, Kobe Kobe didn't become one of the greatest players of all time because he just happened to be born the greatest player of all time. 
-hmm. He was one of the hardest working, you know, people, uh, uh, legends, athletes ever. And, you know, so the whole Mamba mentality is something that I'm very much aligned with. So, you know, you just got to get up earlier and go to bed later. And that sometimes you got to do what you got to do to get to, you know, to, to be a champion. Also learned how to be part of a team, you know, mm -hmm. as Bill Parsons, uh, but Belichick says, just do your job, right? So everybody that's part of the team has to understand what their job is and they got to do their job well. And if everybody does their job, great things happen. So, yeah, important lessons that I learned um, uh, from my coaches uh, in high school. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing. I'd imagine, too, so much carryover with you as a former student athlete, but also with teams and individuals in professional and non kind of sport professional settings, right? Like your organization, um, that even if it's not a sports championship, there can be championships won in the day-to-day -day work of the Hispanic Scholarship Fund. Uh, no, that there, there's no question. And I completely believe that you have to have that mindset, whatever organization, institution, team you're a part of. So you know, here at HSF, we say we're a, we're, we're a fast-paced, high-performance organization. Mm. And that is what we share with anyone who wants to um, to be part of the team and it 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 may not be for everyone mm -hmm. right because that's what you come into you will you will whether it's in person or on zoom you will certainly note the pace at which people are delivering what they need to deliver because they feel so strongly uh, about the vision and the mission of the organization and what we're trying to do and then you know, we also value, um, uh, we're very detail oriented and, and uh, value continuous improvement. So those things that I just shared, if you talk to coaches or people that are on championship teams, those are all part of the, you know, part of the ethos of how you build, you know, champions, a mm -hmm. great team, you know, successful organizations. And so we, we, we do our best to whether we're a nonprofit or not to emulate those practices. And I think those things have led to us being successful. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing. I, you know, the focus on details resonates with me, both from my previous life, but also my current life. And also, um, you know, focusing on details to, to one person means something to another person. And as you're building a team, leading organizations, leading schools, um, you know, I think we found getting as specific and as micro as possible in those kind of management expectations um, is incredibly important because just that phrase amongst other phrases can mean certain things, but looks very specific in the day-to-day -day operation of an organization. No, absolutely. And I think you have to have that clarity. You know, um, every single person on this team has an accountability and they know what their accountability is. So if you ask someone, what's your accountability? They may not have it memorized, sure. but they'll have, they'll have, look, I'll, I'll show you. This is, this is, um, these are my objectives and key results mm. um, as my accountability has the mission of the organization. And it, and it boils down a couple of things. So our mission is um, if we had to boil down our vision and our mission, it's empowering courageous leaders. Okay. So if you ask me, if you ask anyone, what do we do? We empower courageous leaders. And they say, well, Fidel, well, what's your, you know, what is your object? What are your objectives and key results? And there are three, three words, people, finances and operations. And so that's what I focus on every day. And if I'm not, if what I'm doing isn't aligned with one of those, one of those three, three areas, then I know I'm not, I'm not forwarding what we need to be doing. So it keeps, keeps me on track, keeps everybody on track. 
Um, and it's important, you know, to, to be accountable for what it is that you, you say you're going to do. Yeah, I love that. And I think transitioning, you know, we're kind of hitting towards kind of the day-to-day work, but you are the president and CEO of the Hispanic Scholarship Fund. Um, can you give those in our audience that may not be as familiar with the work uh, as others? I'm kind of a high level of what that work includes. Sure, absolutely. So first of all, I'm an alum. So I received a scholarship from the Hispanic Scholarship Fund um, back when I was a freshman uh, in 1986 at Harvard. Uh, yeah, can now, you share more about that story? Because that's something in our research that came up and really powerful. Yeah, no. So um, I'll, I'll share a little bit about HSF and then I'll share a little bit about the, the my sort of origin story with HSF. But HSF has been around since 1975. And in that span, uh, we've awarded... Um, over $675 million in scholarships. We have over 65,000 alumni, um, you know, alumni that include Anthony Romero, who's the CEO, you know, executive director at the ACLU, um, uh, Rosie Rios, who was the treasurer for, um, uh, with the Obama uh, administration. Her name is on a bunch of uh, currency still, I think. And, and, and then just countless other uh, individuals in, in every industry that, that you can imagine. I became, uh, I joined the board in 2010. And uh, just a, uh, while I was a partner at a private equity firm as an alum and just enjoyed that so much so that when the opportunity became available, I became the CEO in 2013. So I've been here since the beginning of 2013. And we've pivoted somewhat in that, in addition to the scholarships piece, we've also built out, um, invested heavily uh, in building out our technology platform. So we're, we also like to say we're, we're an education technology company that happens to be a nonprofit. And we leverage that platform to not only provide the scholarships and the programs that we provide, but to now also provide those programs for other organizations, companies, institutions. And a lot of the work that we do now is around support services for parents, for K through 12 students, for our for our high school students, for our college students and scholars that we support, graduate students, young alumni. And um, we, we also have a career services team. Uh, we have eight full-time recruiters in our staff that work with our partners to find talent, that also work with our scholars to prepare them for these um, amazing you know opera opportunities and again we use that technology platform to deliver other programs so we are also the administrators for the gates scholarship so you might be familiar the gates scholarship is uh, now i think the preeminent scholarship for low-income minority students in the country and hsf is administrating that program on behalf on behalf of the uh, gates um, uh, foundation and we also do um administer scholarships programs for Wells Fargo, for Toyota, um, for Kaiser Permanente. Uh, We just um, administered the College Board's National Recognition Program. Our team does all those things as well. So we're really busy around here. And we also do a lot of, of, um, you know, education, uh, sort of educating people on the process of how to prepare, plan, and pay to go to college. So just this last Saturday, we had um, uh, a Zoom webinar. We had over 3,000 uh, parents and students from over 46 states, 11 countries that, that signed in to, um, to learn how to prepare, plan, and pay for college. 
So that's a little bit about HSF. And then my, you know, my, my connection is when, as a first generation college student, um, you know, my, my father was a carpenter. My mom was a stay at home mom. Um, how my dad helped me prepare for, for my application process was he brought home a desk from a law firm where they were re- renovating and said, here you go. Now you can, you have somewhere to do your applications on. That was really sweet of, of him. That's where the hard work started. That's where the, yeah, that's, where, that's where it came in. I had, I had this big lawyer's desk and that took up half of my you know, the bedroom that I shared with my two other brothers, I'm the oldest of eight kids. Okay. So I, I think one of them used it as a bed uh, <laughs> from time from time to time. But anyway, so I, that's where I did my applications. And when I applied to college, I applied to, um, because I only had five fee waivers. Mm-hmm. I didn't know then, and I we tell our students now that you can actually apply yourself for fee waivers from universities if you can't afford to pay the fee mm-hmm. to submit your applications. But because I didn't know that, I I, I I received five fee waivers from my counselor and I applied to UCLA, uh, UC Santa Barbara, USC, Harvard, and Yale. Mm-hmm. And when I started to receive my accept my letters, I was accepted to USC, UC Santa Barbara, and UCLA, but I didn't hear anything back from Harvard or Yale. So I was too embarrassed to let anybody know that I hadn't didn't get into Harvard or Yale. So I didn't say anything. And so <laughs> I submitted my $500 deposit to USC. And that was it. I was going to USC and and forgot about it. And I was out on the baseball field in April, right end of March, right at the beginning of April. And we were getting ready for the state uh, baseball championships. Hmm. And I remember I was in the batter's box taking batting practice. And then I looked down the left field line. There was this cloud of dust on the service road. No cars ever came down that road. So all of us just stopped, like, what the hell's going on? And looked. And as I'm looking, I like, I lowered my head because I recognized my mom's, I call it a camioneta in Spanish. It's a station wagon. And she had all of my brothers and sisters in there. And she had, um, she was driving. Then she pulled into left field. And my coach was so upset. He didn't know it was my mom. He was yelling. Into the actual field, like beyond, like into oh, fair, into fair play. And stopped. She, she like came and made a left, almost hit the left fielder. And I had to run out. I had to run out there and she was had this envelope and she was waving it out the window, you know, wow. she was abrelo, abrelo, which means open it, open it. So I, you know, get the envelope. It's already opened. And, you know, <laughs> so I, you know, I took out the letter and it said, you know, congratulations. And you, you've been accepted to Harvard. And I wow. put it back and, and um, I ran back to the coach and it's, it was one of the best um, memories that I have, you know, when you, when you go from someone who is really upset at you to someone who's really proud of you in an instant, because he said, well, what, what did she want? Is that I got into Harvard and he was like so angry that she was on the baseball field disrupting practice. <laughs> but then at the same time was so proud, right. That, that I'd gotten into Harvard. So uh, that, that was, that was great. And anyway, so, um, and did you get back in I, the batter's box and then hit the game? Yeah, no, no, yeah. Well, I went, I went into the, I went into the dugout cause the, the, the next guy was up. There was the, we were in a three man, three man rotation. So when I was in the dugout, I'll never forget and my, my friend, George Gallegos was there. He was, a, he, he went on to be a Navy fighter pilot. Great, great guy. Wow. And he said, Hey, he said, Fidel, what did your mom want? She's like, Oh, she just you know wanted me to, uh, uh, give me the envelope. I got into, uh, um, got into another school. He's like, well, where did you get into? I said, oh, I got into Harvard. He's like, where's that? So there was, it was, it was, it worked out for Georgia, right? Yeah. Yeah, it did. But it was, it was fun. It was fun. Anyway. So, you know, I, um, didn't know anything. So I bought a one-way ticket 
to go back to to Harvard um, to go to, to go to my freshman year because I, my thought was well I'll just go to school and and then you know work make some money and then buy a ticket and fly back in June uh, I didn't want to bother my parents with with anything right they had seven I had you know five sisters and two brothers that they had to take care of while I was in college but when I when I got to to campus. I don't know when it was, but it was pretty early on. I was starting you know, paying attention. I was like, wait, the schedule says the campus is closed at Christmas. I was like, what do you mean the campus is closed? Can I still stay in my room? They're like, no, you have to go home uh, and you can't stay here. Mm-hmm. And um, you could stay there for Thanksgiving, uh, but not for Christmas. And I, and I said, oh, no, what am I going to do? So at, right about that time was when I received an envelope um, with a letter from Ernest Robles, the founder of HSF, and a thousand dollar scholarship, which at the time in 1986 might as well have been, you know, twenty thousand dollars. Sure. But ten thousand was just—I mean, a thousand dollars was amazing, and that's what I used to get back home for Christmas, to get back, and then ultimately to get back. So HSF has had a warm place in my heart, um, you know, since that moment. I mean, so many places to to pick up. I, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this, so give me some grace. I mean, one. I love the specificity of that memory of, of yeah. left field of in the batter's box of, of the dirt coming up on the road. That's never come. I mean, talk about whether that's just your sort of memory or not, but how important yeah. that moment is in your life. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I, um, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure it wasn't exactly like that, but that's how I remember it. And I do remember my coach. I remember George. I remember my mom with my brothers and sisters packed in the car. And the reason I know they were all in there was because she had just picked up my sisters at the front of the school because two of them were going to high school with me and all of them with my other, with the other ones in tow. And, back, and thank God they didn't have seatbelt laws back then because they, they wouldn't have been able to, we would have had to get a made it. Truck. We would have had to get one of those uh, sprinter vans or something, uh, you know, um, but yeah, so uh, great, great memory. And by the way, she did the same thing the next day, but she didn't come on the field and it was the, the Yale envelope. So I got into Yale as well. And I, the, the, the funny part about that story is once I, once I real, once I got in, I realized I was going to go, I wanted, it was my dream to go to Harvard. I had never been to Harvard, never been on a plane, but it was my dream. Right. And, um, so I had to go to USC to ask for $500 back. And uh, they felt, you know, they felt sorry for me. Oh, poor kid doesn't know that, you know, schools, schools don't send acceptances until April. So they felt sorry for me and gave me back my $500. And what, what's funny, though, is I still receive USC alumni um, like magazines and, and newsletters because technically I was accepted and I accepted. They don't care if I didn't graduate. I'm right. still a alum. So, you know, fight on. Uh, <laughs> go Trojans. Go Trojans. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, back, good uh, back-to-back days in the Vargas house yeah. with one acceptance to, to Harvard and the next to Yale. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, the, the, other, the other side of that story, while it's, it's a great memory and it's funny and, and um, it, it makes me and others laugh, it also is a reminder to me of just the, the fact that first-generation college students a lot of a lot of the challenges come in the, not not so much in the real sort of challenges or obstacles, but in the subtle unknowing of things. Right? It's the it's the sharing of, of knowledge and information, knowing how the process is supposed to work, demystifying that process so that 
you don't have to feel embarrassed to, you know, because you don't know something mm -hmm. because that's what I felt. And mostly because I felt, you know, not, it wasn't my parents' fault. They just didn't know. Yep. And there wasn't a lot of resources or people that I could talk to. That isn't the, that that's less of a challenge today, but it's still a challenge for many, many students. And so we work really hard here at HSF to, because of that, make sure that that's not uh, an obstacle that keeps someone from applying to the best school that they can get into. I think it's a great point. I appreciate you sharing. I mean, I was a first gen college student myself and still remember my, you know, me and my parents, again, mostly my parents trying to figure out the fast and just not knowing until somebody teaches you understands it. But even to your point, I think so much of what we see in the importance of groups like yours and others is, you know, kids and humans are resilient and smart and figure it out, but they don't know what they don't know. And they can, you know, master calculus, but if they don't know that they're supposed to, that they can't stay on campus, you know, that's just something they don't know. They need a plan for that. And if they have a plan, they can figure it out. But without those skills or expectations, we're not setting students or these humans up for success. Oh, that's right. And that's, and, and frankly, that's the biggest, people ask me all the time, you know, they'll, they'll tick off, you know, college is so expensive and, you know, the, the, the requirements and it's so many people applying and all, all these things that are, you know, and is college really worth it? And, you know, and all of those things could be things that we could focus on, but the thing that we find that is the biggest impediment is that lack of information. It's what you said. It's not knowing what you don't know. So if you don't know, and by the way, most parents don't know that there are schools in this country, some of the most selective universities in this country, that if your child is able to get into one of those schools, you know, while you might see the price tag as 75,000 a year, or 80,000 or 85,000 a year, most people don't know that at these selective schools like Stanford and Harvard and Chicago and Rice and you know, others, Duke, that if you come from a family that makes less than $150,000 in total income, mm -hmm. you qualify for essentially having your entire tuition paid for. That's right. If you, if you go to us, if your parents or family earns less than $65,000 a year, it's not only tuition, but it's every expense that's in the cost of attendance. So essentially it's a $75,000 scholarship. So if you're a student, an, an exceptional student that can, that is able to qualify to get into one of these schools, but you don't apply because you don't, you think you can't afford it. It, you, it, I mean, you're, you're cutting yourself off before you even, you know, you're striking out before you even take a swing right yeah. at, at the plate. And so we tell our our scholars to take that swing, you know, the, what's the worst that can happen. And what we're finding is, is certainly for low-income students, um, regardless of their background, they're, they're able to go to school, right, for free. Mm -hmm. um, and that is something that I think many, many people don't understand. So we can get caught up in, yes, it is very expensive. The cost of higher education has skyrocketed, and we need to focus on how we can you know, make it more affordable. By the same token, there are students today that if that could qualify to get into Stanford or Harvard or Chicago or USC or other schools where their financial aid awards would more than make up for you know what they need to do to get to get through those 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 experiences. So it's information that's the most important, we believe. Yeah, and I'd imagine too, with you know my own teaching experience and the students you speak about, they've already overcome so many challenges and hurdles along the way that when they have that information, they show up on campus. 
they have the skill sets and and the persistence and the ability to navigate those tough um, situations where not only are they going, they already have the skill set and the mindset to be successful. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that that's that's right, and uh, that that's really important. And you know, I love you know a few moments ago when you talked about not only as an, you know what some might see as the outside as an organization that supports and gives scholarships and and counseling and, and that sort of level of support. But specifically said ed tech company and tech platform. Can you speak? Um, can you just share more about why you specifically call that out as you describe the organization? Yes. So um, when I my my background is in finance. So I spent uh, uh, my career after uh, Harvard Business School in private equity and venture capital, and had some exposure to. Um, venture-backed companies that were in the sort of the, in the technology space uh, in particular. And certainly uh, our, our, uh, my last, my firm prior to HSF, we had invested in 47 private equity and venture capital funds that in total backed about 350 underlying portfolio companies. And in each one of those, you know, people, technology, all of those things are really, really important. So when, when I, when I became CEO, one of the first things that we fo- what I, that I was focused on is what is our infrastructure? What is, what is the platform that's, that enables us to scale what we need to do? And not unlike other nonprofits, we had an adequate sort of you know, system. Mm-hmm. The challenge was we couldn't customize it. And every time we tried to customize it because we were essentially leasing someone else's platform, it cost us an arm and a leg. And so finally I said, you know what, why don't we just, we had a great um, uh, CIO at the time and, and she and I sat down and said, okay, let's build a strategy. And what, you know, if you could dream anything, what would it be? And she went off and, you know, came back with the plan and said, this is how much it's going to cost. And so we went to a couple of funders. We went to Wells Fargo and Target and each of them committed half a million dollars a year for three years so that we could invest and build out this, what we called HSF 2.0, wow. which, would, which would be our app, not only our, our sort of our platform for um, the scholarship application, but a sort of a, um, the beginnings of HSF University, the beginnings of a mentor match program, the beginnings of coaching and career services. And so we built that out. And that is, in fact, what got the attention of the folks at the Gates Foundation that said, okay, come up to come up to Seattle, show us what you're doing and tell us more about this. And as and and because of that, we were able to then, I mean, the, the grant from the Gates Foundation is a $417 million grant for the Gates scholarship to, to be the administrator of the Gates scholarship. So if you went to the gatescholarship.org, you wouldn't see HSF mentioned anywhere it's it's the gate scholarship but we're the organization that's behind um that uh platform and so it's our team that is administering implementing you know doing all the work that's required to make that happen and so we've continued to enhance that platform and right now uh, in 2018 or 19 we received a grant 30 million dollar grant from the lily endowment to further enhance to expand and even further what the reach of what we're doing. So the 
the expansion that's being funded by the Lilly Endowment is, is going to enable us to provide career services and career guidance on a, on a, in, in a scalable way. So we're projecting that we're going to be providing those services for somewhere between, in addition to the 20,000 HSF scholars that we currently have, an additional 200 to 300,000 Hispanic college students across the country. Well, so, so that's why I say we're an, we're an education technology company that happens to be a, a nonprofit. As, as you should. I mean, the innovation and leadership is incredible. And I, you know, connecting back to where we started, not that you or the organization has this mindset, but not being afraid to, to strike out in, in that sense with, you know, trying to build something internally rather than just grab it from somebody else. That's a big risk. A lot of uh, staff time and capacity, raising money, target and wells, not names you want to necessarily disappoint, but being able to have that confidence to, to do that and take that risk uh, certainly paid off for you and those you serve. Yeah, there were times where we were wondering whether or not we should have done that. But, um, you know, those are the times you have to weather the storm. You know, you got to you got to you have you have to have faith that the strategy that you've, you know, sort of marked for yourself, the path that you've laid out uh, because you you've sort of understand where you, where you are and where you're going, that that's you know, this is the way to go. So. You know, I say a lot of times around here, I, you know, I'm kind of stealing from the, I think it's the Philadelphia 76ers, you know, trust the process, right? Mm -hmm. And now there are a lot of teams in major league sports that are saying, hey, you got to trust the process, you know, a lot of data analytic driven stuff. And, and we're no different. And so we trust the process. It's like, you know, this is, we've, we've, we've laid the path and now do the work and trust the process. I think it's great. I want to pivot a little bit as we start closing out. You know, you serve on a number of boards. You're a well-esteemed leader across our country. One specific that stood out was the Charter School Growth Fund. Um, can you speak more about like that work and why you particularly serve on that board and have, you know, charters and districts come up a lot in these conversations and going to send you some friendly follow-up questions uh, afterwards as well? Sure. So, um, you know, like you, I'm also a certified high school teacher. Mm. I received my my certification when I was a senior at Harvard. Um, mm -hmm. I had completed all my coursework. And what did you and, teach? Um, I was uh, I was certified to teach. Um, it's the government, world, you know, world okay. history, you know, history those those subjects, social okay. studies. And I did my student teaching at Jeremiah Burke High School in Roxbury in uh, in Boston in Boston. And uh, I never got to teach after I, I, I didn't teach, but I, I, I know I have my, certi my certificate somewhere. <laughs> I know I probably have to take some, uh, some standardized tests to get, to get looped back in. But if this doesn't work out, that's my next plan. There you go. Uh, here first. Go back, yeah. uh, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go back to the classroom. And then, you know, my mother um, was a community organizer as well as um, a school liaison. So she worked in the, in the schools, helping parents with the schools I have two two sisters who are elementary school uh, teachers, uh, one who works at a Montessori school and another one who works um, for like an after school um, support program in education. So education is huge in my family. So I give that as context for when the opportunity came and I was approached to uh, to serve on the charter school growth fund. It made complete sense. I am a proponent of doing whatever we can to improve education and educational outcomes. 
and um, you know charter schools that which are independent, you know, publicly funded schools um, are one of the sort of the one of the the strategies or aspects or 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 um, steps in the process um, to create um, you know better outcomes and 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 to con- and to learn how we can. Uh, improve the educational experience. We certainly face a lot of challenges in our country. And so for me, um, being part of the Charter School Growth Fund is my way of continuing to contribute to making uh, making our schools better and, and making the educational uh, process in our country better and, um, and ideally improving educational outcomes for all students, um, regardless of their socioeconomic or, or uh, heritage or racial or, you know, any of that. And I know what we say as, as the Shermco organization around charter schools and our stance and also personally what I say um, at parties or, or the gym around charter schools, uh, but playing devil's advocate, curious of like what you would offer to somebody that maybe is anti-charter um, or thinks, you um, I, I guess just that, or anti-charter, what maybe advice would you offer or insight would you offer um, to maybe help them reconsider their position? You know, um, so first of all, again, these are, um, you know, charter schools are, you know, publicly funded independent schools, um, which are open to, you know, any student. Um, and that's the kind of school that, that, I, I, that's what I think of when I think of uh, a charter school that's run really well and that's committed to producing um, outcomes. And I'm supportive of public schools or public school education that is doing the same thing. Uh, I have friends who are principals, who are administrators, who are, you know, and I support the work uh, that they do. My kids went, you know, uh, and through um, through eighth grade, they went to you know they went to public schools. Two of my my kids were in dual immersion programs, which I think are incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. So fundamentally, I think we're all on the same page. We're trying to make you know improve the public education system in this country, and so I'm all for looking for as many different ways to do that as possible, uh, and and continuing to encourage. Um, you know, one, uh, adequate and increased funding, and that that funding is utilized in the way that drives outcomes. Mm-hmm. I think when we, when we, when we um, shy away from focusing on accountability in any industry, uh, I think we're, we're in trouble. So I think that accountability conversation in, in education is a really kind of thorny conversation to have. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly if you're in a school district as a teacher or as an administrator and you're under-resourced, it can become incredibly challenging. So there's other ways that we can think about how to do that. By the same token, we shouldn't dismiss out of hand just uh, the, the opportunity to, um, to try new things, to innovate and to learn um, and, and with, with the ultimate aim to improve educational outcomes, to improve the experience, and um, and to ensure that students, again, regardless of their socioeconomic background, 
have equal opportunity to succeed. Yeah, I think sometimes, you know, from the leaders we look to and admire the most, like yourself, um, you know, one, they're not often arguing that uh, the situations aren't tough and in, in, in any sort of neighborhoods that teaching is easy and supporting kids is easy, um, but that accountability still matters. And going back to, to sports, you know, that's more, often more cut and dry, like you win, you lose, you strike out, you hit, you hit the ball. Um, and there's different variables in, in those level playing fields as well. Um, but accountability is still something that's expected. And to your point, most reasonable people, we'd argue, um, think that a level of accountability and outcomes can still be had in public education and other aspects of the work as well. We need to have those. Um, you know, most people don't realize that um, the last that I looked, I think it was 34%, only 34% of Americans have a four-year college degree. Um, which means 66% don't. And um, having an education isn't a prerequisite for, for anything. However, all the studies, have, like every survey study that you see shows that as our world becomes more and more complex, uh, more driven by technology, um, that having you know, certification or training or additional education is critical for people individually to be competitive in the marketplace for jobs, for, for careers. And so if we're not doing more to focus on how we're going to solve that for, in terms of providing those, those, those pathways uh, for people to um, pursue higher education or pursue additional uh, certifications or training, then we're just sure we're changing ourselves as a nation. And that is something that, that concerns me deeply. So um, anything that anyone's doing to try to, um, you know, create, uh, to, to, to innovate and to make the experience of education, you know, um, better. And certainly in K through 12, um, we, we just have to, we can't give up. We have to keep trying to, to do that. I'm going to get you out of here on a few rapid fire questions. First one's a two part. Um, what's one thing listening audience can do to help celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month and then also the Hispanic Scholarship Fund? Sure. So uh, it's, it's, Hispanic, it's Hispanic Heritage Month every day here at HSF um, because of what, what we do. Um, I think what, what everyone can, can do um, is take a moment to, you know, to, to learn. Um, also, I'll just give you a couple of facts, right? If I say what percentage of, of Hispanic children in the U.S. who are 18 or under are U.S. citizens, um, most people would probably guess, you know, somewhere between 50 to 70 percent. The numbers, um, and this is an old number that was in The Economist, and it's a Census Bureau number. It's probably higher now, but it's 93 percent. So 93% of uh, Hispanic children, so 18 or under in the U.S. Are, are U.S. citizens. So what does that mean? It means that they're U.S. citizens. We're, yep. we're, 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 we're Americans. We're not going anywhere. Um, you know, we love this country. Um, and um, so that's one, one, one important fact. And, and if I said, you know, what is the ratio of uh, Asian American to Hispanic um, college students. So how many Asian Americans for every um, Hispanic? Most people guess, you know, three to one, um, just sort of 
the kind of because of the narrative that you mm-hmm. and when in fact there there's two and a half times more Hispanic college students than there are Asian American students in the in the country. And so what that's not good or bad. Or it's not. It's just a, a date. It's data. It's a number. Why do I share those two data points? Because I think a, a lot of in a lot of in most instances, people who are not familiar or haven't you know don't know anyone who is Hispanic have perceptions, and so learning, educating ourselves about our other communities, about each other, I think is a one thing that we can all do when we have uh, the moment to do that. And Hispanic Heritage Month is is one of those. And then in terms of HSF. And we're doing great work. We're, we're just a, a quick kind of uh, um, uh, metric. 95 cents of every dollar that we spend goes to scholarships or programs. Only five cents uh, this last year went to um, administration or fundraising. So if you give a dollar to the SEF, 95 uh, cents of that dollar is going to go to scholarships or programs. So um, you can visit hsf.net, learn more about what we do, support our work. Um, we're doing, I, I think, great work across the country where you know, we have 40 advisory councils all across the U.S. We're, you know, one one in Charlotte, I saw as I was doing my research. Yeah, Charlotte, in Charlotte and Nashville. Yeah. One in Orlando, Nashville, Memphis, Cincinnati, yep. in addition to you know, Phoenix, L.A., you know, Houston, Austin, New York. And we're anywhere there's an NFL team or or an NBA team or a major league baseball team, we have uh, an advisory council uh, in in that market. So you didn't uh, do that on purpose so you could get access to sports. Oh, I love sports. Yeah, no, no, that's, that, those, those <laughs> an overlap. Happen, those happen to be communities that have uh, a high Hispanic, uh, you know, popular uh, percentage in, in terms of the population. And we have lot, lots of our partners uh, as well in those in those cities. So it makes everything a whole lot easier to do. So that's what I would encourage you to do, all everyone to do is to support the work we do at HSF. And again, you can visit hsf.net. Yeah, we'll definitely share that in the show notes and drive people to the website. Uh, last question, President Vargas, uh, what does Square Pizza remind you of? It reminds me of uh, my sophomore, uh, actually not just my sophomore, it reminds me of college. We used to have square pizza um, at Harvard. Um, they used to make it in the, in the, in the cookie sheets. Yep. And um, so um, that's, I remember, <laughs> I've never seen square pizza before. So, but it, it takes me back to uh, my days at the dining hall at Leverett House um, uh, where, where I was a sophomore. That way I was going to say, but I remember grabbing a, the pizza, um, at least not, at least that's what I remember. I don't know. It was a long time ago. <laughs> Hopefully good memories, the ones that you do remember from those days. I have great memories yeah, of, of at Harvard. Yeah. Mr. Vargas, we appreciate it. Thanks so much for taking time and sharing all the incredible work and leadership lessons you've learned along the way. No, glad to be here and glad, glad to join you, Greg. Good luck. Thank you. Thanks so much for checking out the Square Pizza Pod, making a few selfish requests. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps spread the word about the podcast and share this with a friend. We appreciate it. Thanks.